Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Cody Tucker Show. As always, I'm your host, Cody Tucker. Be sure to like and subscribe, tell a friend. Um, Also, check out the merch store. Again, selling t-shirts. I should have a few um, more uh, designs put up here in the next, um, I don't know, I'd say the next week or so. So, definitely be sure to check those out. Buy a shirt, you know, help a brother out things are you know i got a <laughs> need a little scratch so you know buy some damn shirts for god's sakes hell even a magnet all right let's just go and kick right into things because boy oh boy is there a lot to talk about um so i was i was not going to mention this at all uh but I, I don't know, man. I mean, may, I might as well go ahead and talk about it. everybody. Might as well join the bandwagon. Everybody else talking about it. Uh, um, <laughs> the you know Armageddon is near. The end days are upon us. Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift uh, are in a relationship. As of the recording of this, so uh, the as of the date that I'm recording this, last night. Kansas City Chiefs played the New York Jets in New York, technically New Jersey. And I have never been more angry in my entire life than watching this fucking game. So, for one, I'm going to take this off. So, for one, obviously massive, uh, where are you? Massive Raiders fan. So, as a Raiders fan, I also, by default, hate the Kansas City Chiefs so much. Not just the team itself, but the people who are on the team. The, everyone involved in the organization of the Kansas City Chiefs, I hate so much. Now, I have also, <laughs> for whatever reason, have had a pretty large distaste for Taylor Swift. So, combination of the two, <laughs> I wanted the New York Jets to win that game so bad. And I know this is not a sports show, and I normally don't talk about sports a whole lot. But I do love sports. I just, again, there's a million fucking sports shows to watch. I don't want to try to, like, move in on any of that. So I just stick to, you know, really just talking about whatever the fuck I want to. And as of right now, that's that's going to be probably for the next, I would say, six or seven minutes. That's going to be me shitting on Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. So, <laughs> if you're a Swifty or a Kelsey, might want to skip forward a little bit. So, I am. So that game was absolute bullshit. Uh, if you didn't watch it, towards the end of the game, New York Jets somehow staying in it. Boy, did Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey look like absolute dog shit that entire game. And I wonder (laughs) if that has something to do with the fact that Taylor Swift is a fucking succubus who takes out all of the joy in a person's life, sucks it into her fucking decrepit soul, kicks them to the curb, and then uses that to make a billion dollars writing horrible music for 13-year-old girls. And, like for some reason, 50-year-old women who still kind of like wish they were 13-year-old girls. Um, That's just my theory. I have no evidence to back it up, but, you know, succubi could possibly not be real. If they are real, Taylor Swift is a leader of said succubi. 
So, I already was going into watching this game assuming the Chiefs were going to fucking dominate the New York Jets. Uh, Zach Wilson looks like he's about 10 years old and also makes the same decisions that a 10-year-old would make if they were somehow plopped into the middle of a uh, NFL franchise. So, naturally, I'm thinking um, Chiefs are, this isn't going to be a fucking blowout. And, which is a shame because as a Raiders fan, I, I need all the fucking joy I can get because I'm not getting it from these sons of bitches. So <laughs> maybe if the Chiefs can lose a game, I'll feel a little bit happy. Well, game actually starts getting very competitive. Chiefs start getting like they just look fucking horrible. Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey do not look like the typical Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey that you would normally see on a uh, on a Sunday uh, Sunday evening. Now, again, has to be because there is a demonic force sitting in a fucking uh, VIP box <laughs> staring down on that field. And boy is it something. Now, granted also like Ryan Reynolds was in that box and Blake Lively was in the box. Um, you know, a lot, a lot going on in, in that box. All I'm saying is like, Travis Kelsey's career might be over with. So I actually should become a massive Taylor Swift fan because this might be, now granted the Chiefs obviously won. <laughs> and boy, is that a bit controversial. So to back up to what I was going to say, towards the end of the game, Jets have a pretty good chance of coming out with a win and there is there are, there's one missed call that is absolutely fucking horrendous and then there is a call on the Jets defense for a defensive holding that is also one of the worst calls I've ever seen and knowing how the look I love the NFL I love football it's my favorite sport I mean I love hockey and basketball as well um, baseball can take a fucking hike, but hockey and basketball, you know, I'm a fan of those as well, but I am obsessed with the fo- with football, not even just the Raiders. I mean, obviously Raiders fan, but like I watch, I mean, I'm fucking addicted to uh, red zone and NFL Sunday tickets. It's the greatest invention ever made. And so my Sundays are me doing absolutely nothing, but getting ungodly angry <laughs> at people who are, Somehow younger than me, which that's really when you start feeling old is whenever you realize that all the people in the NFL, for the most part, are younger than you, which is, that's a real shot to the dick. So, irregardless, watching the game, there's a, clearly, Roger Goodell is, you know, channeling his way in there saying, uh, Chiefs need to win this thing. (laughs) We, We cannot have all these new fans watching Taylor Swift. Uh, to see her boyfriend lose a game. So make it happen. And then sure enough, there's the worst call I've ever seen. And yeah, Chiefs end up winning. Absolute bullshit. I was... I almost recorded this episode last night because of like how fucking fresh it was on my mind. But there was like a 90% chance I would have had a goddamn aneurysm on camera. Which, you know, probably would have made the uh, the views go up a little bit. But, you know... I wouldn't be around to know. So, (laughs) yeah, weigh your options. So I decided to do it now, and I'm still uh, real pissed off about it. Now, at first I was, like, thinking, 
So first in my head, I was kind of thinking like, you know, this actually, this is a pretty fucking good move by Travis Kelsey. As much as I hate, again, cannot stress this enough. <laughs> I hate the Kansas City Chiefs. And as much as I also hate Travis Kelsey being a part of the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, if he was on any other team in the NFL besides the Broncos and Chargers, if he was on any team that is not in the AFC West, hey, I'd love Travis Kelsey. I'd be glad to see him on every fucking commercial on TV. I'd be like, hey, good for you, bud. No, I'm not doing that now because I hate the fucking Chiefs. So, when... um, like whenever I see that he's, you know, I'm like, God damn, like this might this is probably a pretty good move. His jersey sales went up four hundred percent. That's pretty good. Granted, his playing has dropped off <laughs> drastically. So that has seeing what the the swift effect has happened on Travis Kelsey is making me realize that like this is how the Raiders can stand a chance against the Chiefs. The Raiders need to start blind dating. Like setting up blind, the Raiders need to start setting up blind dates for the Kansas City Chiefs to just start banging pop stars. And granted, I know some of them are married already. Fuck it, ruin the marriage. I need Patrick Mahomes needs to dump uh, his fucking asshole wife, uh, Brittany Mahomes. Start banging Britney Spears. Won't have to remember a new name. It'll be an easy transition for him. And then Patrick Mahomes will be absolute dog shit for the rest of his career. That's what I need. Now, granted, Mahomes is going to have to keep his head on a fucking swivel because <laughs> uh, little because uh, <laughs> little Brit and her uh, knife dances. Oh, boy. Um, actually, I think I had a... Actually, I think that was going to be the next. Yeah, so not to jump too far ahead, but this happened. So police conducted a welfare check on uh, Britney Spears after the viral knife dancing video. Yeah, no shit they did. Um, now, I know that these were fake knives. Okay? I Trust me, I've been shitting on Britney Spears for a very long time because she is an absolute lunatic and does not need to be free. She needs to be put in a padded room with zero access to a camera, a phone, the internet. She needs to be locked in a padded room with a couple of fucking I Spy books and, you know, that's how she needs to spend her days. Um, like, it's, you know, sorry not sorry about it. You know, I hate that Britney Spears probably went through some horrific shit. But, you know, you know, you, there's a trade-off. When, you're, when you get to be that rich and famous at such a young age, the trade-off is that by the time you're 35, you are a person who is batshit crazy with dead eyes who is dancing the most doing the most weird fucking like shaman dances holding what are supposedly fake knives terrifying the shit out of your two little fucking yorkies (laughs) those dogs were so scared (laughs) and i know it was a bunch of shit like PETA, like oh um i need to rescue those dogs like yeah yeah they do I mean, I'm, you know, not typically one to really give that much of a shit about, you know, I have not, I've very rarely have I ever been on PETA's uh, side. Uh, I'm kind of on their side now because granted she didn't do anything, any harm to those dogs, 
but you could see there's a look in both of their eyes of like, ah, shit. Like, we don't have much longer. <laughs> like, like, this bitch is just grabbed two knives and started dancing with them. Next the next video, she's gonna be wearing both of our fucking pelts on top of her head like goddamn Davy Crockett. It is um Yeah, this is not good. I mean, I don't know. I mean love is love, I guess, so if um if two douchey suck bag people wanna get in a relationship, fucking go ahead. Like I guess I just don't care about new music enough, which Taylor Swift's been around for a while, but even then, like, that still kind of shows, like, how far removed I am from giving a fuck about any music now. But, like, I was very unaware of how big Taylor Swift is until this, her popping up into my world. She has invaded my Sundays, and I do not fucking like it. Now I know how like Christians felt when they started building mosques like right next to churches where you're like, hey, motherfucker, this is my <laughs> the Sunday's my day, goddammit. Like you stay away. Like that's now granted, I should probably not have said that, but you know, practice whatever religion you want. I mean, I'm staying the fuck out of I'm not going to either one of your damn buildings. Um But you know, people don't want people people don't want things treading into like their, you know, Safe place. Understandable. My safe place is watching football on Sundays. I do not want to be reminded that Taylor Swift exists. I do not want to be reminded that titty cancer exists. Now, granted, I've you have to deal with that every fucking October because everybody's going to be wearing goddamn pink shit, and you have to be reminded that occasionally your mom might call you and say, hey, uh, my own tits are trying to kill me. Goddamn. I hope you've been watching football and then doing your part. <laughs> um, you know, whatever. I just, I like for my Sundays to stay sacred. And by sacred, I mean for me to have Doritos dust on my fingers while I'm spitting, yelling at the TV about, you know, Basically tr telling a quarterback how they should have thrown a ball, you know, a foot higher in the air. Like, that's not fucking catchable, you prick. And meanwhile, I'm, you know, 360 pounds of fucking, basically, mushed hamburger meat. So, you know, I guess that's a little bit of a good old-fashioned hypocrisy. But everyone's a hypocrite to some extent. So, you know, anyways... I mean, with how shitty Travis Kelsey and Mahomes played last night, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm rooting for Taylor Swift right now. <laughs> I mean, I'm on Team Team Tay Tay uh, until you know, you know, until further notice. So, good luck out there, fella. You uh, you really fucked yourself on this one, old Kelsey dog. So uh, let's move on. Let's stop talking about this bullshit. Um, what's next? Okay. <laughs> so the last living suspect in the 1996 drive-by shooting of Tupac Shakur was indicted in Las Vegas on murder charges. Um, I, well, hey, finally got him. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. It only took, what, damn near 30 years to do it? 27 years? Yeah, like 27 years to do it? Great work. <laughs> I mean, my God. Like, 
And also, so the guy's name is Keith D. Keith D is the guy who was arrested. I believe he is either the uncle of or nephew of. I get it fucking mixed up which how they're related. I believe Keith D is the nephew of a fellow by the name of Orlando Anderson, who was also... So those two were allegedly the two that were in the car that drove up next to um, Suge Knight's BMW and unloaded on the car killing Tupac. Now, I am not a detective. I am not a cop. I've never worked for a police force in my life. I knew that this motherfucker killed Tupac like 12 years ago. (laughs) If I knew about it, then how in the hell... Are they just now indicting this dude? Now, granted, I guess you have to have, you know, evidence. But I feel like the guy that you just arrested going around bragging about killing Tupac is a pretty good place to start. (laughs) This son of a bitch has been bragging about this since I was in, like, junior high, it feels like. Maybe high school. I feel like I remember watching a documentary... That actually, the documentary might have came out when I was in middle school. I feel like I remember watching one where they went through the whole thing, and basically Orlando Anderson and Keith D admitted to killing Tupac on camera. And I guess in my stupid brain, I thought, well, that that probably gets you arrested for something. I think. I mean, I feel like if you get <laughs> if you go on camera and admit to a murder, you probably are going to get looked at at least. They might at least come talk to you and say, "Hey, were you fucking around or did you are you being serious in that goddamn documentary?" And unless they were just like, "Oh, no, 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 we're joking." And the cops like, "Oh, okay. Well, all right. You know, good day, sir. Good day, sir." And then leave. But I feel like, you know, I don't know, it just seems odd that it's just now happening. Especially after Orlando Anderson, who I think if my story if I'm getting my story right, I think Orlando Anderson was the actual shooter. So I think Keith D was driving the car and Orlando Anderson was shooting. I think that's right. Um, well, Orlando Anderson died like a couple years ago. So, and he's like the main fucking dude. But also, you know, I think this, this opinion, this might be a bit of a hot take. I did not think it was, but then I've shared it with I shared it with a few people, and boy, they did not seem to be on the same page I was on. So I guess I'll just share it now, and we'll see. Tupac. In no way am I questioning the talent and impact of Tupac Shakur. Arguably, top five greatest rappers of all time. Probably top top three most influential. Uh, seemingly beloved by everyone, only becoming more beloved after his death. Blah blah blah. You know, everybody loves Tupac. Everybody's he's the he's you know the inspiration for everyone. He had this coming. He one hundred percent brought this shit onto himself. Now, if you look into which I spent way too much time looking at digging into the conspiracies around Biggie Tupac. Um, I just, just going down a fucking rabbit hole of, um, you know, God damn, I guess the LAPD really did kill these motherfuckers. And, and like Suge Knight and Diddy might've also had something like going through, going through all this shit. Where I'm like, Oh my God. 
Now, I'm not saying that I believe that, like, you know, there's the theory that Suge Knight hired these guys to kill Tupac. Now, that seems to be as bad shit nuts as Suge Knight is. I doubt that he, being a real big old some bitch, would hire two guys to pull up to his car while he's driving and shoot into his car uh, to kill Tupac, knowing that he <laughs> is right next to him. And Suge Knight's body mass, a whole lot bigger than Tupac's body mass. So all the strays are hitting Suge Knight. Well, Suge Knight did get shot, I think. I don't want to say a number because I'm not sure if it's right. I know there was like one that grazed his head. and I, th- I think two or three times Suge Knight got shot. So yeah, um, you know, not claiming to be some kind of uh, forensics genius, but I don't think that that's what happened. <laughs> What seems to be the truth of that whole situation is that Tupac Shakur grew up with a mother who was a Black Panther. Very um, like socially aware, very intelligent person, but obviously, public knowledge, had some issues of her own. Like drug abuse, you know, jail time. Tupac's mom had, had some issues. That's... And I'm not judging her, just what it is. Tupac grew up in a very, um, just very like it's hard to explain. Like a like a very in a very socially aware way of like being like artistic and expressing yourself. He did not grow up in the street life. Like Tupac went to a performing arts school where he went to school with um, Satan herself, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. And that is where she cursed him to die at a young age. Uh, (laughs) And yeah, I mean, the fucker was taking like ballet classes, poetry, like 1700s English. I mean, uh, doing plays like Tupac was not raised in the same type of environment as Biggie or Diddy or uh, Nas and and definitely not Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, you know, any of the guys in like the West Coast. Tupac did not grow up in that kind of world. But from how it comes across, Tupac wanted to give off the persona, you know, give off, yeah, like a persona, present himself with a persona that was... Like a you know a gangster, like you even watch like the videos, like watch like the um, was it is it um, two of America's most um, well, damn I think it's the vid- it's the video with him and Snoop Dogg, but they're literally dressed like nineteen forties gangsters, nineteen thirties gangsters, like they're it's how they're dressed, like like the old fucking um, Cagney um, movies, like the old James Cagney mafia movies, like that's how they're dressed in the fucking video. And I think kind of saw Suge Knight as being like an actual, like as a mafioso, which in a lot of ways (laughs) he was. And him wanting to play fucking make-believe is what got his ass killed. Him getting kind of persuaded by Suge Knight to jump uh the fellas at the casino in Vegas after the Tyson fight, probably not a great idea. Now, granted, you know, allegedly they kind of started it because they, is it they snatched uh, one of the death row chains off of a rapper and like 
you know, it was seen as being very disrespectful and were like wearing it around. Um, and Suge Knight, I guess, pointed the guys out and was like, oh, those are the fucking guys. And then, and then you see Tupac run over there and beat the shit out of them. Well, next thing you know, a couple hours later, he is dead. So, you know, maybe he should have just stayed his ass at the Performing Arts Academy and kept doing movies. Which, granted, also a hot take, horrible fucking actor. <laughs> and I know I've heard a lot of opinions of like, God damn, like we really, you know, the sad thing is we missed out on Tupac's, you know, movie career. I don't think we did. Because uh, allegedly he was going to play his next big role. He was going to be Robin in Batman and Robin <laughs> opposite George Clooney. So did we really miss out on a fucking Tupac movie renaissance? Don't think we did. Poetic Justice is a dog shit movie. Um, well, not really a dog shit movie. He's just not good in it. And you watch Juice, and it is one of the most unintentionally funny movies ever made because of how horrible Tupac is in that movie. All, all this being said, he's an amazing, amazing artist. I'm not, not shitting on that part of him. He's just a shit actor who made horrible, dumb decisions trying to pretend to be something he wasn't. And, you know, I hope Keith D goes to prison for the rest of his life because he still murdered a fucking icon and has been getting away with it for 27 years while also bragging about it every chance he gets. So, you know, that's that. Uh, let me do... Let me see if we got one more here to do. Okay, so this would be... Yeah, yeah, here we go. <laughs> oh, fuck me. Um, so a married British Airways pilot snorted coke off a topless woman's chest before trying to fly. <laughs> His quote, I've been a very naughty boy. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something, brother. I, I mean, I would love to find out that my pilot's like all hopped up on fucking devil's dandruff before we get on a flight. God damn, that plane's doing fucking... Like, I don't know if planes can drift, <laughs> but the, that pilot's going to try to find out for us. <laughs> Man, you were getting, like, I know they got rid of the Concorde. This is the way to, this is like the transition to bringing back the Concorde. Is just get your pilots hopped up on Coke, let them, you know, lick a nipple or two. And you are getting from New York to London in about six hours. <laughs> They will find a way to put fucking pedal to the metal and get your ass across the Atlantic so fucking fast. <laughs> hey, I'm like, that's how I want pilots to seem. Now, look, I'm, I, this is going to come across oddly, you know, a bit misogynistic. So I'll apologize in advance. If I go on a, if I were to go on a plane, and the pilot comes on the radio, and the, it's, you know, if it's a woman's voice, I want to think that I will be like, like, standing ovation, we're proud of you, you are, you know, you are overcoming all this, you know, you're overcoming a lifetime of adversity to sit in that cockpit. But I think the reality is that I'd be like, hey, is <laughs> is there a later flight? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I just, 
I don't know. That's the, uh, you know, that's just the shithead in me that needs to, you know, I'm sure I need to break out of that at some point. But I don't think I ever will, so I might as well embrace it. I'd feel real skeptical if that fucker wasn't a dude or at least, like, you know, like white men get a bad rap. And it's pretty justified, actually. Actually, as as soon as I'm saying this, I'm like, well, we have done horrible shit to people for a long time. So I guess it is probably the right call to, you know, hate white men. The only place where I still think we belong is flying planes. Everybody, Everything else, you can fucking replace us. I mean, there's no reason why a doctor... You know, I mean, hell, doctors... Like a lot of the doctors who come from, like, other countries who study their asses off medical school. They're the best doctors in the fucking, in the country. Um, teachers, uh, yeah, doctors, nurses, lawyers. There's no reason why any gender, race, culture, religion can't do any of that shit. Flying planes. <laughs> it's just, it's just gotta be us for a little bit longer. <laughs> we gotta hold out on that one. Um, you know, I'll put my foot down on this. Like, hey, take over everything else. Kick us all to the side. We deserve it. We're assholes. Um, but just let us let us keep flying planes for a little bit longer. And occasionally, if one of them wants to snort a little bit of blow off of a you know, off of some whore's titties, then hey, that's 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 just the price of doing business. You know, like if if you hired somebody to paint your house. And they were like the best painters in the world. Like they got they got that shit done so quick. But every once in a while, when you walked out to you know check on them and ask them how they're doing, if they had two trails of white powder going from nostril to lip, I mean, are you gonna tell them to go away, or are you gonna be looking and go like, God damn, they painted half this fucking house in thirty minutes? Holy shit! <laughs> like. I th- and I think that might be more than one coat. Like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm saying, eh, go ahead. Right now, you know, we're we're handling business. So I don't, I say, I mean, they definitely shouldn't be drug testing pilots for, I mean, they shouldn't be mad if it was coke. Now, if this dude was doing heroin or, or PCP or something, like if he was going a little too overboard, you definitely don't need some dude falling asleep or... You know, thinking that his testicles have turned into, you know, goblins and is trying to rip them off and, you know, throw them into the aisle. But a little bit of blow just to, you know, fucking just to feel, you know, feel God for a second. Yeah. I mean, you were flying at 30,000 feet in the air. Like, that's already a rush. Like, if this guy needs a little fucking, you know, jump start to the fucking nuts to, you know, to get this plane right. Hell yeah. Now, I don't know if he was doing it in the cockpit. I tried looking into it. I'm pretty, well, actually, I just lied. I did not look into this one bit. I just read the headline and was like, this is the funniest fucking headline I've ever seen. I've been a naughty boy. That is what you say when you are in no way sorry about what you have done. (laughs) Like, even when I was an actual boy who did something naughty. I never referred to myself as a naughty boy. I just was like, yeah, I'm being a 
being a fucking prick. Like, be saying I've been a naughty boy is just like, yeah, sure, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> it's like when you give an apology where you're like, I'm sorry that you're upset. Instead of just saying, I, I'm, instead of saying like, I'm sorry I made you upset, you say, like, I'm sorry that you are upset. That's what saying, like, I've been a naughty boy is. It's like, it's saying, okay, to you, I did something wrong. To me, <laughs> I'm a fucking badass. <laughs> yeah, so, keep flying high, pal. I hope, I mean, I hope he's still is good to go. I mean, it didn't, I don't remember saying anything about him being let go, which... I mean, I'm sure they did because we live in a fucking pussy world where, you, I mean, a dude can't do a little bit of coke off of a tit and fly a plane, you know, holding the lives of 170 people in the palm of his hands. That is not a world that I want to live in. Fuck that. I want, like, I want Denzel Washington in flight. I want a dude who has drank so much goddamn uh, Bacardi that the next day he's got to do about six lines just so that he can put his fucking shoes on. That's what I want, uh, you know, when it comes to my uh, pilots. So, anyways, that's enough of the news. Um, I think we dove into enough shit. I did have a lot more, but goddamn, I'll be here all day doing this. So, let's just go ahead and move on. Got a little bit of um, my Mount Rushmore. Uh, this week, um, since, you know, football is kind of becoming, a, you know, we're ramping up into the NFL season. Week five, I guess, is starting now. Yeah, week five. Or week four. No, week five. Yeah, this is coming into week five, so I'm actually pretty early in. But still, I'm in fucking football mood. So, doing the Mount Rushmore top four greatest uh, football movies. So, without further ado, here... Alright, so here we go. So, now we're going to do my Mount Rushmore. Uh, doing the four, what I think, are the four greatest football movies of all time. Now, you may agree, disagree, perfectly fine. Leave a comment, tell me what you think. Um, these just, to me, would be, if there was a monument dedicated to football movies, these are the four that need to be chiseled on that bitch. So, first one, Varsity Blues. I am perfectly aware <laughs> that that picture is backwards. Uh, do not know how that happened, but it happened. Um, which, granted, this whole fucking thing is just one big dumpster fire. I mean, this whole podcast, this shit show. Um, I mean, it's really just one bad move away from just completely imploding onto itself. And, you know, that's just something that I live inside, you know. Which is okay. It is what it is. So, this picture being backwards, you know, I don't know how it happened. I feel like whenever I got the picture, it was not backwards. At some point, it became backwards. So, the it does it, the movie is Varsity Blues, starring uh, James Vanderbeek, Paul Walker, James Scott Con, Amy Smart, John Voight, Ali Larder, I think is her name from Final Destination. Anyways, very good cast. Has some of the funniest lines ever that well some are intentional some are not now i will say i have a tendency to just catch on to a line from a movie and repeat it endlessly 
and drive people absolutely nuts. And as a kid, I do not want your life became one of those lines for <laughs> for a while. And it pretty much got used anytime somebody like brought up something about themselves. Anytime where it could like, you know, it became apropos for me to say, that is your life. I do not want your life. That is, it got used. And it is a miracle someone didn't fucking stab me right in the goddamn chest. But I'm still here today. So, yeah. And also, uh, fire that fucking pig skin. That also became a, uh, a line that I used um, at any, uh, you know, any moment I saw fit. As did uh, you two fat, slow, and dumb Billy Bob. So, you know. Oh, and also, <laughs> we was just kids, Mox. That became another one that, uh, yeah. Yeah, really, Varsity Blues, there's damn near an endless amount of lines that most of which are not supposed to be funny, but boy, did I find hilarious. Now, Billy Bob getting drunk as a skunk on the bed of his truck, shooting his trophies with a shotgun, um, while getting very close to... Now, that movie, that scene, I don't know like if it was originally supposed to be that, you know, everything's okay and that James Vanderbeek, like, you know, makes a little joke and gets him to cheer up. But I remember the first time watching Varsity Blues and thinking, oh, my God, this movie is about to take a real dark turn. <laughs> like, if I see Billy Bob split his fucking wig, I'm, I'm going to be traumatized. And luckily they didn't. But, uh. Oh, yeah, and John Voight. Let's go, let's go, let's go. That shit also got me for a while, too. Like, him trying to pep up the team after he's just turned into a complete asshole. Yeah, anyways, Varsity Blues, watch it. So many good lines. And, you know, the movie, whatever. I mean, to be honest, most football movies are not necessarily, like, great movies. I just like them because I like football and I like movies. Combine the two. Now, granted, I also like ranch dressing and dark chocolate, but I'm not about to eat a uh, dark chocolate bar filled with ranch dressing. Although, I've eaten worse. So now, next one. Any Given Sunday, Oliver Stone's masterpiece, um, starring Al Pacino, Dennis Quaid, Cameron Diaz, Lawrence Taylor, LL Cool J, Jim Brown. Yeah. Another fucking just stacked cast. Now, I know that people hate Any Given Sunday. Not everybody. There are people, obviously, that love it. There are a lot of people who hate it. And their reasoning is that they think that it's way too unrealistic. I do not understand that mindset at all. Whenever I watch Any Given Sunday and side-by-side it with what I have always, what I've always been you know, hearing about the NFL and how the NFL definitely used to run. I don't know that it's necessarily like that now. Um, well, granted, um, you know, there was a Raiders player who did get arrested this past um, week for doing some odd things. So I think there's still a little bit of a wild wild west going on in the NFL but definitely not as much as like in the 80s and 90s and this is more so supposed to be like that like 
basically the NFL's version of the attitude era into ruthless aggression, like that era of the NFL, like the, any given Sunday, I think compared to what I've read about what that era of the NFL was like, it doesn't seem too far off. <laughs> I think that's one of those things that people probably just didn't know that the NFL was that crazy back then with like drugs, um, people getting just fucking manipulated and railroaded and just how you get tossed out and like how you're treated, like just how the fuck. Oh, and James Woods is also in this movie. <laughs> so, you know, there's that, but like just how, like how fucking like just crazy the NFL was. I don't know that people really knew that when this movie came out. So yeah, I'm sure when you watched it, you were like, what the fuck? Like, like, okay, here we go. Oliver Stone's doing like a complete bullshit version of, you know, reality where apparently everyone's a cocaine addict and uh, <laughs> fucking everybody else. Well, it turns out the NFL kind of was like that <laughs> for, for a pretty good amount of time. Now, again, I think it is this, the side-by-side comparison of the of wrestling and the NFL is very relatable. And the NBA as well is like... 1980s, very, what seems to be all-American, you know, cookie cutter. But in the background, a lot of steroid use, a lot of drug use. And so everybody just looked at it as being like, oh, these are like gods and blah, blah, blah. And it just hadn't reached that, like, pinnacle of shit yet. Then you go into the mid to late 90s and it just starts getting rowdy. You have, you know, like the NBA, like Jordan, end of the Jordan era and everything, and NBA. I mean, more so the NFL and football. Like the, the attitude era of the of the WWF goes hand in hand with how like brutal the NFL was in the late nineties. Like people just getting obliterated, and everything was like extreme. Like <laughs> like everything had X in front of it. Uh, well, hell, there was even an, the XFL. But then you go into ruthless aggression where it, like, really pinnacles to where it's like, God damn, these people aren't even... I mean, this is, like, so fucking brutal. And then a complete 180 disney version of those two things. And I think the NFL is 100% in that, just like wrestling is. It's just that when wrestling does it, it sucks ass. And when the NFL does it, you know, people don't end up... Uh, killing themselves in um you know the stadium's parking lot so you know that's that uh so any given sunday if you haven't seen it watch it and that's basically you know that pretty much sums up what it's like to be in the nfl back then again not necessarily so much now so anyways moving on the replacements somewhat a true story uh of the uh lockout where a couple scabs on the washington r words you know, came in, played on the team, and uh, they were basically repl- replacement players. Then, in when did this come out, 2001, make the movie with Gene Hackman, Keanu Reeves, um, what's the fucker's name? Made Iron Man, John Favreau, Reese Ifans, I think is his name, the other guy, the kicker. I'm bloody Welsh. So, boy, that was a bad, uh, bad, bad, bad. Uh, impression of that oh well orlando what is his name orlando jones yes orlando jones was a meant to be anyways replacements one of the greatest like feel-good movies 
ever. Like a movie that I 100% can put on at any given time. Uh, I'm not even going to make the pun. So at any time I can put on The Replacements and I'm I'm watching it. doesn't matter what part of the movie it's in. Like I've seen it so many times I like know exactly what's going to happen. And I'm like, oh, this scene's coming up. This scene's coming up. And I'm just by the, you know, I'm watching the movie. Um, I love movies with like an ensemble cast where like each person has like their own like their own shtick, <laughs> if that makes sense. And any given Sunday is a uh, god damn it, not any given Sunday. The replacements is a hundred percent that. Like you have John Favreau, a cop who a hundred percent normal, very quiet, and then as soon as he gets on the football field, is an absolute fucking maniac. I guess like you could say like kind of similar to like a Brian Urlacher. Um. I mean, you have an ex-con who's coming in. You have Orlando Jones, who's like a shitty thief. Reese Iphens, a Welsh soccer player who owes money to the mob, basically. Like, I don't know. The whole idea of it is fucking awesome. And Keanu Reeves as Shane Falco, to me, that is the greatest movie sports performance of all time. And that's even comparing it to He Got Game, where Ray Allen was in a movie. <laughs> I think Keanu Reeves as Shane Falco is a more realistic, like, like oh my god, this guy is actually really fucking good at sports. Uh, it, it, I think it even outweighs Ray Allen and He Got Game. And Ray Allen was in the fucking NBA for, what, 15 years? One of the greatest players of all time. Now, granted, Shane Falco did get offered... I believe offered by the Baltimore Ravens to come try out as a quarterback <laughs> when this movie was being filmed. So, yeah, Keanu Reeves knows what he's doing. Now, granted, he played two of the greatest football, um, you know, two of the, you know, actually, well, kind of like the biggest, you know, disappointments in college football history. You know, you have Johnny Utah, Shane Falco, Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, Bull. one Sugar Bowl and one's. Or is it Rose Bowl? God damn, I'm pretty sure that Shane Falco is... I mean, yeah, Shane Falco is Sugar Bowl. I think Johnny Utah blew out his knee in the... Uh, damn, I'm pretty sure Rose Bowl. Doesn't matter. Either way, um, yeah, Keanu Reeves probably could have been in the NFL. And yeah, Replacements is awesome. The music's awesome. It's funny as shit. But not, like, overly funny. It's just, like, a super easy watch. So now let's move on to the exact opposite. <laughs> Friday Night Lights. To me, now granted, The Replacements is the most fun movie to watch out of the four. This is the best movie. Like, as a movie, this is the best one, without a doubt. Now, this one actually 100% based on a true story of the um, Odessa Permian high school football team of 1988, I believe. Um, so there was this author, Buck. I have the book somewhere around here. Eh, whatever. The author was following around this high school football team just like to do a piece on, I think, for Sports Illustrated. Well, I think. And writing an article about, you know, what life is like for a high school football team in, uh, you know, the middle of nowhere in Texas. And got a story that I don't think he was expecting to get. <laughs> um, I, he got exposed to a world that 100% existed back in 1988 where if you were good at high school football, 
you were like more of a celebrity than like people in the NFL. Like there was there was a time, and there's maybe even still a time, still happening, where certain parts of the country where NFL teams aren't close. So like West Texas. Now granted, you're still in Texas, so Dallas Cowboys, but like West Texas, where Odessa Permian is, is so far from Dallas. Like you might be actually be damn near closer to Phoenix than you are to <laughs> to, to Dallas. So Odessa and like I mean, there's not really like a college team that's any that good. So high school football is like the fuck it, that's what they care about. They don't really care about college football, uh, NFL, don't care about any of that. They care about high school football. Now granted again, with like times changing since nineteen eighty eight, that's probably a little bit different. But damn sure was the case in the eighties. And the way these kids were treated, and kids, like 16, 17, 18, the way they were treated walking through the halls of Odessa Permian High School, bananas. And the flip side of that is that these, so yeah, you're treated awesome. Everything's free. You go to a restaurant, like you don't pay for anything because you're on the varsity football team, blah, blah, blah. Now, the flip side that is examined pretty well in the book, not as well in the movie, but still there, but way more in the book, is that if, for whatever reason, you stop being good at football, you get hurt, can't play, you just start losing, whatever, for whatever reason, you immediately become basically a leper. And there are some stories in that book, and touched on again in the movie, where you're like, oh my god. Like, the way that the black players are talked about, specifically one player who um, was getting all passing grades, and then as soon as he got hurt and couldn't play, suddenly was failing every class, and how they started calling him, like, the end. The teachers, not the other students, the teachers referring, like, calling him a big, dumb... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um... Yeah, it's it's a dark, it's a dark world, but this movie examines it perfect. Like, really makes you feel like you are, like you get a one hundred percent look at like what it is like for these guys, going like growing up playing football, and and it ending, and like how they're just like, now what the hell do we do? I mean, the acting is amazing. Billy Bob Thornton. Tim McGraw, who is incredible in this movie, like my daddy took a bullwhip. <laughs> I mean, there's a scene like where he's like that ring, he's like nothing, and then throws that ring out, and bam. Garrett Hedlund, Lucas Black, Mike Winchell, um, Booby Miles, played by Derek Luke. I mean, it is. It's a. It's a rough movie to watch. It's one of those movies that, like, you, you, like, in your head, you remember the scenes, like, the football scenes. And it's, like, how, like, pretty realistic they look. And, like, how, and the music and, like, all this stuff. Like, and the music, the soundtrack is incredible. Explosions in the Sky, band from Austin that did this uh, soundtrack. Incredible. And there's obviously, like, ZZ Top and other stuff, too. But, um, like, you really get the, it's Varsity Blues with zero comedy. Like, that's, that is what Friday Night Lights is. Um, but yeah, I mean, but then you kind of forget that there are some scenes in that movie where, like, I mean, I'm not necessarily like a crier, but boy, it kind of like makes me feel kind of sick to my like that choking, sick feeling in your stomach, like in your gut. Oh, 
specifically the scene where Booby Miles finds out that he is probably not going to be playing football ever again. And he is having a hard time uh, dealing with that, sitting in the car with his uncle, leaving the hospital. And that scene, I mean, I don't know what Derek Luke is up to these days, but he should have won an Oscar for that movie. My God. Yeah. So anyways, that's that'll round it up. There's my Mount Rushmore. Four greatest football movies ever made. Let me know what you think. If you agree, awesome. If you disagree, well, go fuck yourself. But also leave a comment because I would like to know. It's always fun to uh, do a little chitter-chat about film. So time to move on. Do a little uh, where that come from. I believe a pretty interesting one today, so let's not uh, let's not stand on ceremony. And uh, he... All right, so now we're going to do the segment, uh, where that come from, take a famous word, phrase, find out where that come from. So this, uh, this week, going back early, early America, actually America pre, uh, well, at the foundations of America. So in the mid 1600s, when Puritans, pilgrims, uh, all the uh, you know expats of England who came over to settle new lands, find religious freedom, money really. Um, all these groups come over to the uh, Northeast, what became you know New England, and while they're there, obviously have interactions with the people who have been here uh, a whole lot longer than them, <laughs> the Native Americans. Now in the Northeast. In that area of like the first colonies and the first settlements, there's a federation called the Iroquois Federation. The Iroquois Federation was like a, a conglomerate of different Native American tribes in the region who, now obviously, we wiped out a pretty good chunk of them. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, pretty well known. At least now, it's, obviously, it's like a well more taught thing is that we, uh, I mean, the, the U.S. government did not handle the situation all that well. Not the colonial government or the post-colonial government either. Um, so when we come and start settling these areas of New England, obviously have interactions with the Native Americans in the area. And this Iroquois uh, confederation different groups within that and then just groups that have nothing to do with it but all these different native american groups we're having interactions with and we know nothing of them they know nothing of us so obviously there's you know a lot of tension and tension from both sides um people starting you know people st- a lot of uh shit stirring between the two groups um now granted they're here first so I, you know, they get a little leeway, but definitely were the instigators at times to not trying to, you know, take one side or the other. Just a lot of tension between the two groups, groups that know nothing about each other, completely different religions, languages, cultures, um, skin color, look different, sound different. Yeah, things are going to be a little uh, rocky at first. And so there's obviously a lot of fighting between the two groups, like all throughout New England, especially in like Massachusetts, Virginia, um, 
like all those areas of like the first settlements and the first, you know, say the, in the first 50, 60 years uh, since. So like within that first, you know, really, I'd say within the first hundred years of Britain coming in to settle in the new world, a lot of fighting between, uh, you know, the white settlers and the uh, Native Americans, Iroquois Confederation, or the Iroquois Federation more specifically. <coughs> now, obviously, there, it wasn't just always fighting. There were times where, you know, they kind of were able to talk to each other, communicate, negotiate, <clears throat> kind of make, you know, some sort of civility between the two. Obviously, not always. But there were still a lot of times where they're just like, hey, you know, can we work out something between the two of us? And they would have a negotiation. Now, during the, nego- the negotiations, it was customary for these Native American uh, people that... So, like, for the um, different tribes within this group, so it was customary for the Native Americans that, like, when you're negotiating or, like, you know, trying to discuss, like, some sort of, um, you know, agree, come to some sort of agreement. When you're trying to come to some sort of agreement that you can't have your weapons on you. Like, it's kind of shows that at any moment you could be ready to attack the person. Like, it's it's seen as, you know, kind of a breach of trust. So... They, you know, make it known that, like, when we negotiate and try to come to an agreement for something, that you cannot have your weapons. They also can't be readily available. So what the, you know, Puritan settlers and, like, the other, like, British colonists start noticing is that these Native Americans do a, what they think is pretty bizarre ritual, but a ritual that they, you know, have done with their own negotiations, you know, with between tribes. And what they do is they dig a hole and then take all their weapons, put the weapons in that hole and cover it. And you cannot unearth the weapons until the negotiation is final. So then there's no chance of an attack. Our weapons are hidden. Your weapons are hidden. This is an agreement we're making. We trust each other enough to where we have, you know, a civil discussion and come to an agreement. So the Native Americans dig a hole, put their weapons in there, and they expect the British colonists to do the same. And out of respect and wanting to, you know, kind of conform with each other and do each other, you know, have with the purpose of coming to an agreement, the colonists do the same. Dig a hole, throw their guns in there, uh, not, you know, whatever weapons they have, throw them in their hole, cover it up. Have the discussion. So, the Native Americans are digging a hole and throwing in bows, arrows, knives, you know, throwing in all these weapons, including hatchets. So, the term began in the mid 1600s. Uh, it started getting written by like the British, the American colonists, started getting written down that they practice a ritual of burying the hatchet. So, burying the hatchet is a phrase that came from this where the Native Americans would literally bury a hatchet 
in order to, uh, you know, end a feud and come to an agreement. So there we go. That's where that come from. All right. So next story. This is going to be the story of <laughs> one of the greatest scam artists <laughs> in history. This one is wild. So this is a guy that I can almost guarantee you've never heard of. It's a fellow by the name of Gregor McGregor, which is already the coolest name I've ever heard in my life. Gregor McGregor. So he was a Scottish army, basically just a badass in the Scottish army. And um, highly decorated. He was the great nephew of Rob Roy, which also a Scottish legend, um, and a drink. Um, if you ever have a drink named after you, you did something right. So Gregor McGregor, great nephew of Rob Roy. He's uh, like highly decorated in the Scottish Army. He fought a bunch of wars, uh, fought in a bunch of wars for the Scottish Army, won a lot of, you know, got promoted very well. Well, Gregor McGregor, after he's kind of like done his work with the uh, Scottish Army, he really just wants to be rich and famous. Like that's Gregor McGregor's goal his entire life. It's like, I want to be rich. I want to be famous. So he thinks like, well, I'll be famous for, you know, my military work. And he kind of was. Gregor McGregor, pretty famous dude in Scotland at the time because of like how highly decorated he was. So he ends up deciding, well, I'll move, (laughs) I'll move to Venezuela and start doing, you know, basically doing some work out there and seeing what happens. Maybe I can go to Venezuela and make a good living for myself. He goes to Venezuela from Scotland and he ends up marrying the, um, he ends up marrying the cousin of Simon Bolivar. So (laughs) when he marries Simon Bolivar's cousin, he ends up becoming a pretty influential part of their army. And at this time, Venezuela is trying to fight for uh, independence. So he ends up fighting for Venezuela's independence um, alongside Simon Bolivar. He's even made general by, uh, you know, Mr. Bolivar. Well, after that, after the, so in the meantime, while, you know, being part of Venezuela's military, he also ends up in the U.S. and in the state of Florida fighting for control of Florida from the Spanish. And so that ends up, you know, he ends up getting like all this acclaim within the Venezuelan army. And, but that whole idea of being rich has not left his mind. And at this point, he just starts embezzling money from the Venezuelan army. Like right from Simon Bolivar, his you know cousin-in-law, <laughs> just starts embezzling a ton of money from the Venezuelan army. Simon Bolivar finds out and immediately is like, "Kill him!" Like he wants uh, Gregor McGregor killed. Well, he, Gregor McGregor ends up escaping Venezuela and moving to Honduras. And when he's in Honduras, he in the meantime is writing letters back to Scotland. In the letters he's writing to Scotland, he says that he has been given the title of Cazique of a country called Poyais. So that's what he's writing in these letters, is that I have met these people of this country, Poyais, 
and they have given me the title Kazikwe. Now, if you are having a hard time trying to picture where Poyais is on a map, it's because it doesn't exist on a map. It doesn't exist on a map because that country, Poyais, never existed. It was 100% made up. <laughs> so Gregor McGregor is literally writing back to his friends in Scotland saying that he has been given a title, which Kazikwe basically is like, like, like almost like giving like um, a British person like knight, like knighting a British person. Like Kazikwe is like a very, it's supposed to be like this high title. And he says he's been given that title by the people of Poyais, a country that doesn't exist. And when he um, he's writing this letter, it starts getting attention. Like people are like, "Wow, what the fuck? Gregor McGregor is like doing really good down there in uh <laughs> in uh you know Central and South America. Like he's killing it." So Gregor McGregor ends up coming back to London, and when he goes to London, his goal is to get. <laughs> the government, the British government, to fund a trip, like to basically fund a colonization of Poyais and, you know, give him like millions of dollars so that he can basically create this like settlement in Poyais. And he comes back to London with a constant, with the constitution of Poyais, (laughs) which is also completely fake. Um, and claiming like that it's basically heaven on earth, that it's like this beautiful, like rainforest jungle, like, you know, rich agriculture, like it's, it's basically paradise. And so he, he's able to convince the British government to give him basically like in today's money, millions of dollars, uh, to return back to Poyais. And when they do, um, Hundreds of people are hearing about this and are wanting in on it. So they come back with them and they're bringing all their money, like whatever money they have. These are people who a lot of them are pretty desperate, like thinking this is going to be the chance for a better life. So they're giving, you know, Gregor McGregor all, all of the money and possessions they have just to be able to come back with them and live in this paradise. So he's like, sure, whatever. So hundreds of people end up coming back with Gregor McGregor to Honduras. Um, and it is a section to, well, what Gregor McGregor says is Poyais. It is this desolate jungle in the middle of Honduras <laughs> that has nothing. I mean, it is unlivable. In the short amount of time after they return back to Honduras, over 150 people, out of the hundreds of people who came back with them, 150 people died from starvation and disease. Because there was no chance of growing any real, like, farm, doing any real farming. There was no chance of making us any kind of, like, civilization in this place. I mean, it is a desolate jungle that Gregor McGregor brought these people back to, and 150 people ended up dying. Now, you might be thinking, well, Jesus, by now, Gregor McGregor has to have been getting caught and has probably, you know, spent the rest of his life rotting in prison. You would be wrong. So Gregor McGregor ended up getting off scot-free, moved back to Venezuela, lived the rest of his life in Venezuela, doing great, with millions of dollars given to him by the British government. And yeah, nothing ever happened to Gregor McGregor. Lived a beautiful life in Venezuela like a king. (laughs) So yeah, 
sometimes uh, sometimes things just work out for horrible people, and that happened to Gregor McGregor. So, all right, let me move on to the next one. Here we go. One. <clears throat> all right, so now moving on to uh, a little bit of half-ass history. I have three, I think, very fascinating stories to go over that I think you'll like. So the first one, boy, I feel like I have mentioned this you know, segment of uh, American history quite a bit, but I'm fascinated by it, and there's damn near an endless amount of information to go over. So, um, it involves one of the most famous action film stars of all time and one of the most famous murders in American history. So, in the late 60s, there was a fellow by the name of Jay Sebring, Jay Sebring is a celebrity hairstylist to the stars, Jim Morrison, Steve McQueen, like all these people. Jay Sebring also took martial arts lessons. Now, the person that he took martial arts lessons from was a guy, very un, you know unknown at the time, but it was a guy named Bruce Lee. Now, Bruce Lee, Jay Sebring, they get along very well. Jay Sebring is like, oh, Bruce Lee, you should be in movies. Like, you this you're very talented like you have a lot of charisma you could easily be in movies um jc bring actually gets bruce lee his audition for the green hornet that becomes bruce lee's launching point you know to doing all these like amazing films ending with you know, enter the dragon um so bruce lee and jc bring strike up a friendship jc brings like hey i want to introduce you to a friend of mine She's uh, going to be doing this movie where she has to do like martial arts, and she this would be great if you could like give her instructions on how to do on martial arts, make her you know give her some lessons. So Bruce is like, sure. Well, the woman that J. Sebring is referring to is the young actress Sharon Tate. Now Sharon Tate is filming this movie uh, called The Wrecking Crew. In the movie. She, you know, has to do a lot of karate, martial arts. So Bruce Lee's giving her private lessons at her home on Cielo Drive uh, very regularly, like for hours at a time. Now, at this time, Sharon Tate's husband, Roman Polanski, is off uh, out of the country filming a movie. So it's basically just Bruce Lee and Sharon Tate at the house alone all the time where Bruce Lee is legitimately teaching her. Um, martial arts and she becomes fascinated by Bruce Lee and is even like telling uh, Roman Polanski like God you need to like meet this person and she's doing the same thing to Bruce Lee she's telling Bruce Lee like oh you should train my husband like he would be fascinated by you like like everyone who runs into Bruce Lee is just enamored by him so Sharon Tate she strikes up a friendship with Bruce Lee where Bruce Lee's at her house all the time now Fast forward a little bit. In August of 1969, Sharon Tate, J.C. Bring, and two of their friends, Abigail Folger and Wojciech Prakowski, are at their house. That same house where Bruce Lee, allegedly earlier that day, had been giving Sharon Tate uh, lessons. Um, or at least, like, had been meeting with her earlier that day. So, allegedly, Bruce Lee was at the house this day, earlier in the afternoon, meeting with Sharon Tate. Um, that later that night they go out to eat um, Sharon Tate and her three friends go out to eat they come back when they do 
I mean, one of the most famous murders in American history happens. Sharon Tate, all four of them are killed by what later become known as members of the Manson family. Now, obviously, they did. no one knew who killed Sharon Tate, J.C. Bring, Abigail Folger, and Wojciech Verkowski at the time. There's zero idea of who it might be. Tons of suspects, lots of suspects, but no real idea of like who actually did it until a little bit later, whenever, obviously, Charles Manson's arrested. Um, well, when Susan Atkins is arrested, then starts confessing about it. Now, Roman Polanski, again, is in another country filming a movie uh, while this happens. So he obviously rushes back home and is, you know, devastated. Little sidebar. Um, they wanted to clean that, so they do all the investigation and everything. And um, when they do the investigation, after the investigation is done, they need someone to clean the house. They, you know, they're just like, like Roman Polanski's friends are like, oh, we need to clean the house before he gets back because he doesn't need to walk in and see all this. And so two, a couple of Roman Polanski's friends go over to clean the blood and, you know, all the stuff off the walls and everything. And now the carpet. Well, one of the guys who went over there was Jack Nicholson. And there is a whole other thing with Jack Nicholson. I'll probably dive into that in its own little, you know, section. But, yeah, so Jack Nicholson's one of the people who cleaned the murder scene of, you know, Sharon Tate. So Roman Polanski comes back, and he's meeting with the police. And pretty upset that they have like no real su- I mean they have a lot of suspects but none of them are very like legit they don't seem to be like good leads now one thing that ha- that was found at the crime scene was there was a pair of sunglasses found and he Roman Polanski is asked to look and see like are these yours are these any of that you've ever seen before he's like no I've never seen these sunglasses in my life so it becomes kind of thought as is like, okay, well, this could have been a clue. Um, this These sunglasses could have been left by one of the killers. So if we can figure out whose sunglasses these are, we'll probably find out who the killer is. Um, now, the police are not really following it up that well. Um but Polanski's still like, ah, I need to know like who it is. Whatever. So Polanski goes and buys a lens measuring gauge because he wants to know what prescription, because these are prescription sunglasses. So that's a pretty important fact, actually. Um, <laughs> so the sunglasses that they find are prescription, which that is going to narrow it down quite a bit because obviously prescriptions are somewhat unique. So Roman Polanski buys a lens measuring gauge so that he can find out what prescription these sunglasses are so that he can like try to pinpoint who it might be. So Roman Polanski basically just starts doing detective work on his own because he, he doesn't think the cops are working hard enough to find who killed his wife and unborn child and you know their three friends. Well, he's starts basically going to all of his friends' houses and all of his associates' houses and checking their glasses, like sneaking in and checking their glasses to see if the prescription matches. He even he checks like all these people, like he even checks like um uh Papa John Phillips from um the Mamas and the Papas. Like he checks like all these people's glasses and none of them fit and he's like, geez, I don't know whose glasses these are. Well He's hanging out with, so then he finally is like, all right, well, I'll, I'll, you know, Sharon Tate wanted me to meet this guy, Bruce Lee, so I'm going to meet him. 
And um, so a little while later, like pretty down in the dumps, Roman Polanski's like, I'm probably never going to find out who killed who killed my wife. So he's hanging out with Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee <laughs> asks, um, so Bruce Lee asks if, uh, if he's seen his sunglasses anywhere, Bruce Lee is like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I uh, a few months ago I lost a pair of my sunglasses, and I think I lost them at your house." So Roman Polanski's like, "Uh, really? Like doesn't like he kind of plays it cool? He's like, really? You lost a pair of sunglasses at our house, huh?" And so to Roman Polanski's all kind of fitting in because it was like also said that like the person who did this had to be somebody who was like very physical, very like savage, like could easily, you know, restrain four people. They didn't know how many people were involved in the murder. So like Bruce Lee starts becoming to Roman Polanski, a very legitimate suspect. So Roman Polanski's like, Oh, you lost your son. Well, it's fine. We can go get you new sunglasses. And it takes Bruce Lee to a store to get prescription sunglasses made so that Roman Polanski can check the prescription and see if it's the same prescription. So <laughs> Roman Polanski is like legitimately thinking I, this is the guy who killed my wife and they get the prescription and it isn't the same prescription. So Roman Polanski's like, God damn, like it wasn't Bruce Lee. And apparently Roman, like until Bruce Lee died, like a little, not long after this actually, but for the next few years until Bruce Lee died, um, Roman Polanski never told him that he suspected that he was uh, that he was the killer. Like never told Bruce Lee. Like it just became a secret that, you know, I mean, obviously Bruce Lee will never know. But like a secret Roman Polanski held on to from him because uh, he didn't want to, you know, seem like an asshole. Which, well, Roman Polanski sure sure uh, changed that tune a little bit later in life. But still, so at one. So, crazy thing, at one point, Bruce Lee was the suspect in the Manson family murders. So, yeah. So, there's that. Let's go on. All right, here we go. So, now we're going to do the last one of the of this week's Half-Ass History. So, this one, we're going back to the year 1993. In 1993, there was a party in uh, the Los Angeles area. A party set up by a woman named Joanne Carson. So Joanne Carson is the ex-wife of former Tonight Show host Johnny Carson. So Joanne Carson sets up this party at her house. Where she is inviting all of her celebrity friends to this house to hear from a fella who claims that he has created the cure for AIDS. Now this is the early 90s. AIDS epidemic is still massive. There is no, I, I mean, no idea of like how to cure this, how to treat it. Like the AIDS epidemic has become, the AIDS epidemic had become very much part of the, uh, you know, public sphere, especially, you know, in Hollywood and amongst like celebrities in Hollywood. So hearing that Joanne Carson, ex-wife of Johnny Carson, has found a guy who can cure AIDS, all these celebrities are eager to show up and hear him out and maybe invest in his cause. When they go, they are all sitting there, like waiting for the guy to come out and speak. The guy comes out. The doctor is a fella named Henry Heimlich. 
<laughs> if that last name sounds familiar, it's because Dr. Henry Heimlich invented the Heimlich maneuver. So Dr. Henry Heimlich, aside from inventing the Heimlich maneuver, was also a complete charlatan scumbag. Henry Heimlich claimed that he was curing AIDS by injecting people with malaria. Now, I that is insane, but also it had been done in the past with other diseases. So like syphilis, there was at one point syphilis before there was an actual cure for syphilis and real treatment, how they f would treat it was they would inject people with malaria because you would get malaria and get a crazy high fever. When you got this high fever, it ended up killing the syphilis that was in your body because syphilis could not handle the degree, the temperature change um, of like that amount of heat. So it would kill the syphilis and then you could just treat the malaria because at the time there were treatments for malaria. So they would just basically do something to give you a really high fever to kill the other thing and then treat the thing that they gave you. So he claimed that you could do that with AIDS. Well, um, you can't. <laughs> and he was showing all these like all this research and proven cases that he had done. And apparently he had done this to a lot of people. Now who what he was doing was he was just going to third world countries and testing it on people in countries where there was basically no legal system to stop him from doing it so he ended up killing a lot of people a lot of the patients that he treated ended up dying from the malaria and aids combination well dr henry heimlich doesn't really mention that <laughs> when he's talking to all these celebrities he's talking about how he's like basically he is going to cure aids and, you know, they can all be a part of it. Now, there is a doctor in the crowd of people amongst the celebrities. And he is basically the only person to raise any, like, to see any red flags with any of this. And say, like, hey, um, can I see these studies? Turns out the studies were never peer-reviewed. I mean, they haven't gone through any kind of process to become, like, legitimate studies. So this doctor's, like, on, like, he, he is catching on to what's going on that this Henry Heimlich dude is a scumbag and just wants to be, you know, famous. And so Henry Heimlich is, you know, he's convinced, he hasn't convinced the doctor. The doctor is not on board and the doctor's trying to get people to like, see that this is not good. But Henry Heimlich has convinced all these other celebrities that like, they are all going to cure AIDS. Um, so a lot of the celebrities in the house, start donating or immediately are writing checks to Henry Heimlich. And, uh, so like Jack Nicholson, Bob Hope, John Voight, and Ron Howard are all amongst the celebrities who ended up donating that night $600,000 to Henry Heimlich. <laughs> so all these celebrities are donating money to Henry Heimlich to cure AIDS. He ends up just killing so many people with uh, <laughs> by giving people in third world countries malaria. Now, Henry Heimlich, just to do a little bit of a backstory on Henry, Henry Heimlich and just show that like he was always a charlatan. So Henry Heimlich may or may not have actually discovered the Heimlich Maneuver. But also, the Heimlich Maneuver was not seen as being very effective when it was first like becoming, you know, getting traction by Henry Heimlich. He believed that it was going to change the world and that you could actually like 
cure diseases by giving people the Heimlich maneuver. I mean, there's some bizarre stuff that Henry Heimlich was doing and like promoting back in the day, even before this AIDS AIDS stuff. So Henry Heimlich was like, no, like no, no, no. This is this is the way that you could keep people from choking to death. Now, granted, it it does. If you give someone the Heimlich maneuver in the correct way, it is very effective in stopping people from choking. But at the time, like, you know, the Red Cross and all these groups, they were, like, not eager to make that become, like, the way that we treat it, that we treat people choking. So they were, like, skeptical and wanted to, you know, test it and make sure it works. Henry Heim was like, nope, no need for testing. I know it works. Like, it needs to be the number one thing now. I need all the attention, blah, blah, blah. Henry Heim just looking for attention. Well, instead of just going about it, you know, the way that most, like, most acts of medicine go, you know, going through the proper channel. Instead of going through the proper channels, Henry Heimlich decides to get in touch with his cousin. His cousin was on the TV show Happy Days and basically worked his way into getting on set of Happy Days and showing people the Heimlich maneuver and showing how, like, it's going to save everyone's lives and convincing the writers of Happy Days to incorporate the Heimlich maneuver into an episode of Happy Days and thus making it, you know, getting it seen by millions of people. And then that's how the Heimlich maneuver became, you know, this massively like well-known taught thing. Um, yeah, it's because Henry, Henry Heimlich basically just <laughs> connived his way into it the same way he connived all these celebrities into donating over half a million dollars into you know, giving people in third world countries malaria to cure AIDS. Um, Henry Heimlich also claimed like throughout his entire life claimed that, uh, the Heimlich maneuver could uh, stop people from drowning. Uh, it doesn't. So if anyone tells you to give someone the Heimlich maneuver, when a person is drowning, don't, it is actually super harmful. But again, Henry Heimlich, Nope, do it. Heimlich maneuver cures everything. Do it. <laughs> and you know, there's no telling how many people that Heimlich maneuver actually killed because people thought you were supposed to do it when people were drowning. But regardless, that's the story of Henry Heimlich. Uh, one of the, I mean, just a massive scumbag. But, yeah, so hopefully you found that interesting. I think that'll do it for this week. Um, well, until next week.